Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 35, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Becky Nader and I are here, back uh, together again. Uh, we keep saying, wow, what a crazy summer. Look, we're back together again. And then we have the crazy, crazy summer continues. <laughs> you guys, I think maybe our life is getting crazy. Oh, I don't know. Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are. And you know, one of the things we're going to do today is is get back to what I think is sort of the bread and butter of this, this podcast conversation, which is it's called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and that's what we love to do. We love to pay ridiculous attention to the things Jesus says and does so that his heart opens up to us, so that we're drawn into that heart in a deeper, more intimate way. I was just with uh, some folks today in a, in a meeting earlier today, and one of uh, the people in that meeting kind of stopped the conversation and said, what I really hunger for is to experience Jesus as close as the person is sitting next to me right now. Like, my reality in everyday life would be that Jesus is as real to me and as inf- influencing my life as the person sitting next to me right now. And I thought, you know, if that's you listening um, right now, then this is the conversation for you. That That's our heartbeat. We want to pursue Jesus and experience Jesus in such a way that he seems a little more real than he does uh, at the start of the conversation. And so today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to pursue Jesus through a filter that he uses all the time, and we think we know what he means when he uses this filter, but I think this is one of those mud puddle moments, those one of those moments that adults jump over <laughs> instead of step into and wallow around and, and figure out what's actually going on here. I think this is one of those moments, because Jesus over and over again said that if we want to live in the kingdom of God, if we want to understand what life is like in the kingdom of God, if we want to live in his kingdom, we'll have to become like little children. So we've heard that for a long time, and how do we translate that? I mean, when we hear that, do we think cute and cuddly, innocent, incapable of holding down a job? (laughs) What do we think when we think he's asking us to become like little children? And there's kind of a classic... uh, story that we're going to start off with today to kind of set the stage, and then we'll go from there. So this happens in um, it happens in all of the Gospels, but the one I'm going to read to you is from Luke 18. It's in a little section called Jesus Blesses the Children. So this is Luke 18, through, uh, 18 15 through 17, and it's a very short encounter, but it packs a lot of punch. Here it is. One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Hey, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. 
So he's saying some strong stuff here, and um, I try to reflect the exclamation marks <laughs> that are in this as well, because he's pretty, pretty vigorous about this. So he's telling us we've got to become like little children to even enter the kingdom of God and then live there, but what is he really talking about? So that's what we're going to explore today. What is he really talking about? Uh, I, I told Becky the other day, um, I, I just finished writing this book, Spiritual Grit, and now it's in the editing process. And as I was going along, I had to cite some of the, obviously, the sources that I'm using. So I had to pull out my old copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because I quoted from it a couple of times. And in my, I opened it up, and I was just struck when I opened up the first page of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It said, C.S. Lewis wrote this, he said, a book for children. And it struck me as so ironic because uh, Lewis loved writing for children. The Chronicles of Narnia are some of the most beloved books of all time. Even people who don't realize a Christian wrote them and that there's allegory embedded in them love those books. And, and yet some of the most respected theologians in the world see these children's books as some of the great theological works that have ever been written. So Lewis says these are books for children, but actually there's great truth about God buried in these books for children. And it just struck me the irony that C.S. Lewis may be the, the, the leading apologist in the Church in the last 500 years, let's say, one of the most learned men ever uh, in, in the Christian body, embedded his theology in books for children. There, there's something very Kingdom of God-like about that. You know, we know, also know that children in the time of Jesus were seen very differently. They were, radic they were seen radically differently than we see them today. So that means that we have to understand what Jesus meant when he was referencing children, because we have to get into his context as well. He, he didn't really mean that, you know, like we said, like I said before, that uh, we, he wants us to be as cute as children, or as clueless as children, or as unfiltered as children, I guess, in some ways. Uh, in fact, in, in Matthew 11, let me switch over to that real quick, there, this is a place where Jesus is saying, not, you can be like children, but not like this. Go ahead, you can read it, Becky. Matthew eleven sixteen. To what can I compare this generation? It is like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. I read 17, too. Oh, that's good. So he's, he's saying, what can I compare this generation to? And then he compares them unfavorably <laughs> to children who do what again, Becky? We played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. So these, these children are saying, hey, I, uh, where's the cause and effect here? I did this, but you didn't do what I asked. I did this, but you didn't do what I asked. He's really pointing out how children think and in very black and white cause and effect way, and he's comparing that generation of adults to this negative aspect of children, or at least he's not, he's not honoring that, that thing that children do. So it's, he's not saying that become like children in every way. <laughs> he's not saying there aren't some things about children I don't want you to become like. Um, he's not saying that. So in fact, uh, maybe, maybe let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this just for a second, um, Becky. What, what are some ways that we can think of here that um, are obviously not things that he wants us to emulate 
as that, that children do or think or say? What are some things like, if you can think of some things that that you thought about or were as a child that you you really don't want to emulate those things from when you were a kid? Does anything pop into your head? I don't think he wants us to have temper tantrums. <laughs> right, Adam? Huh? Oh. No, Adam has lots of temper tantrums. Oh, my his gosh. Kids, his, his son is, is about that age. Um, also, they tend to tattletale. They don't take responsibility for themselves. Um, they have a tendency to show off sometimes. I was just with some cute, adorable little girls, and it was just cracking me up because they just wanted to show off constantly. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. So, And even with that, they tend to be very self-centered. Self-centered. The world, world revolves around them. Um, they're not naturally looking out for the other maybe sometimes. No. Yeah. They can uh yeah, they they definitely do the that's mine. <laughs> you know? They're very they're very territorial. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Uh yep. whine. They whine a lot. They can uh, whine and complain a lot. And they maybe use the leverage of whining mm-hmm. to to get what they want. They know yep. that they have some power that they can leverage. They kind of come out of the womb a little bit manipulative. <laughs> oh. They're a little manipulative. They know. They know. They know that if they smile and look cute, that you'll. They can get away with anything. I mean, they kind of know right away. Yeah. So there, there's obviously some some things that we don't. That Jesus is not talking about here when he says you must become like little children. The other aspect of this that I mentioned before is um, children were treated differently at his time than they are now, and so it's important to understand some of that context. One great source for some context about this is a book we've mentioned before on the podcast. It's John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man?, which is a unique book as far as the books about Jesus that I've read, in that he's trying to describe the impact Jesus had on world culture. Even if you don't believe he's God, um, Jesus uh, certainly changed the way the world is. He changed history in a lot of arenas of our culture, and one of them is relative to children. I thought I'd just read you a, a couple of little excerpts from Who Is This Man, where Ortberg is talking about how children were uh, seen and thought of differently in the time of Jesus. So here's, here's, a, here's a couple of little excerpts from that book. Children would be thought of differently because of Jesus. Historian O.M. Baki wrote a study called When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity in which he noted that in the ancient world, children usually didn't get named until the eighth day or so. Up until then, there was a chance that the infant would be killed or left to die of exposure, particularly if it was deformed or of the unpreferred gender. This custom changed because of a group of people who remembered that they were followers of a man who said, let the little children come to me. So Ortberg is here saying uh, this attitude toward children, that they were uh, only kept if they could be seen as useful or pragmatically important to life, that all changed with Jesus, who completely recast the value and importance of children outside of their pragmatic value. Uh, here's another little excerpt, excerpt from the book. The title child, especially in that day, would be a vivid contrast with king or great In the ancient status-ordered world, children were at the bottom of the ladder. In both Greek and Latin, the words for children meant not speaking. (laughs) Children lacked the dignity of reason. 
Even Plato wrote about the mob of motley appetites, pains, and pleasures one would find in children, along with slaves and women. Children were noted for fear, weakness, and helplessness. None among all the animals is so prone to tears, wrote Pliny the Elder. To be a child was to be dependent, defenseless, fragile, vulnerable, and at risk. And those were not qualities associated with heroism in the ancient world. So here he's pointing out that, uh, again, that children were seen as um, non-useful and non-respected because they didn't exhibit the kind of qualities that were respected in that culture. So uh, just a couple of, of little excerpts from John Ortberg's book about how when Jesus said these things about children, they were earth-shaking because he was attempting to say things about children that were very honoring, and that not only that, but if we didn't become like these throwaway people, uh, we couldn't even enter the kingdom of God. We couldn't understand the kingdom of God unless we became like these, uh, like these little ones. So uh, I think one, one thing to uh, explore also before we kind of dive into some stories of where Jesus was elevating the role of children, one, uh, one thing to explore a little bit was uh, what, what's the difference between childlikeness and childishness. Mm. So you, you, we, we rattle off some things that we, we don't really want to emulate yep. as children, but Becky, in your mind, what, how have you yourself experienced the difference in you between childishness and childlikeness? How would you define those things differently in your life? Well, I think as adults, um, and we were just talking about how we really had no margin today. I mean, both Rick and I have been running since we got out of bed this morning. So, um, and we are, after this, we're going to keep running (laughs) probably until we go to bed. And that's, you know, if you are probably listening to that and going, yeah, that's how most of my life feels like as, as an adult, our lives become pretty, you know, there's little margin for anything else other than all the stuff that we have to get done. But children have tons of room in their life. They have so much space to play, um, to experiment, um, to rest, to dream. And so they, and they, they sort of like, don't even, um, think about it. They don't think about time. They don't, um, think about, they don't worry. Um, they're not afraid to try new things and to, um, to experiment. They're not afraid of how the world is judging them yet. And, you know, so they're just a little bit more carefree um, and they just have room in their life. They're not so rigid and uh, judgmental. So I just think that children have the ability to be more accepting of things that are around them that maybe they wouldn't understand. And, and I, if I think about this, this difference that we're parsing the, the, between childishness and childlikeness, uh, childishness is giving in to the baser, the baser instincts of of a child. Like I know that I'm being childish when I'm uh, acting in an, in an immature way, in a way that is not consistent with my maturity level as an adult. That you know, we all know that when we sort of give in to this, those moments when we're either in an argument or a or we're frustrated about something. Lose our temper. Or... Yeah, or, or things didn't turn out the way we wanted to, and we can feel that edge inside of wanting to give in to childishness 
where we just whine or complain or throw up our hands or uh, act like little children, we know that in that moment there's something not right about that. It's dishonoring to our adulthood. It's dishonoring to our maturity. There's something about childishness in that. Childlikeness, uh, I, I feel like, is associated with a kind of a freedom. I'm thinking of this. Um, I go to this. Uh, it's the food truck rally on Tuesday nights. It's at the park by our house, and it's super fun. There's bands that play, and there's just like it's like families are everywhere. People just throw out picnic blankets, and they order food, and kids run around the park and. I, we were sitting having a picnic there, and it was so hilarious watching these kids that don't know each other, and they have absolutely no problem walking over to the blanket next to them to total strangers to another kid who's about their age and being like, hey, you want to go on the swings? <laughs> you know, And how as adults, we kind of don't do that as much anymore. We're not... We're, we're wary of just walking up to strangers and being like, hey, you want to go run around and roll down the hill with me? I don't know you, but, you know, would you like to do that? That would be strange. But kids have no problem with the freedom of just doing that and how I think about that is as adults, how it's difficult if you are trying to have a playful relationship with Jesus because we've been taught to stop doing those kinds of playful things? What if we just went and we rolled down the hill to see what that would be like and how fun it would be? I would probably have to go to the chiropractor afterwards. <laughs> but th these kids, they have no problem. And so by the end of it, they're all best friends. They're all, you know, they've played, they've rolled down hills, they've climbed trees, they've gone on the swings, and they have, they just, they didn't even think about it. And then the responsibilities set in. Yeah. And then our knuckles get whiter and whiter. If our hair gets whiter as we get older, so do our knuckles, mm -hmm. because we start to hang on to life much tighter. When we start to be aware of what's at stake, mm -hmm. children aren't aware of what's at stake. They have no idea. Right. Mm -hmm. You could tell them, you know, uh, there's a hurricane off the Gulf Coast right now, and they have no conception of what that might mean to people. And as adults, you start to get a conception of what that might mean. But they're sort of separated from some of the greater context of life. And so they live in the moment. Or they, you know, that, that when I said childlikeness is associated with freedom to me, I think uh, of the all of the shows that have been on TV over the years of the kind of unfiltered things children say. E even America's Funniest Home Videos, a lot of those were simply things kids did and did and said that were unfiltered and so therefore they're funny to us because as adults we would never be as unfiltered as that and yet i think there's also something that jesus loves about that about children that they say what they see and they give it the right name and if they have have an emotion they name it correctly. They don't have a filter yet. They don't have right. like a, well, I probably have to preface it in this certain way so that they'll understand. I mean, they just are like, they just say whatever that whatever it is. They're not thinking about how you're going to respond to it or that you might find it's funny. I mean, they just are saying it. Like, it's just whatever. It's really, it's really, the, really the foundation of authenticity in a, yeah. in a sense. I mean, it, I mean, it's the opposite of being a poser where you're crafting everything to be received a certain way by the people that are uh, you're around instead you're simply yourself which what is what authenticity really means is you're comfortable just being yourself it's only as kids become teenagers 
that they're hyper aware of how the world is looking at them and they start to craft themselves instead of just be themselves. So I think that's another thing that Jesus loves about children is that they they are just themselves, which is ultimately where we're headed. If you think about maturity in Jesus, we are headed toward becoming ourselves again. He wants to free us from the captivity of all of the facades and structures that we built around us and the games we play with people and the and all of the self-esteem related props that we've put up in our lives and all of the protections against vulnerabilities and threats that we've adopted and white-knuckled our way through he wants to release us back into the person that we are simply and purely and how we operate and influence the world like that let's now j- just jump into some of these encounters Jesus had with children, or times when he elevated something about children. And I will just read these little segments, and then Becky and I will react to them. The first one is from Matthew 5. And this is interesting, because on this podcast, we've talked about Jesus' standard for love. And it's a, oh, it's a high bar. (laughs) And here is when he talks about his standard for love, but he associates it with being children. So let me read this. This is from Matthew 5, it's verses 43 through 48. So this is part of what we commonly call the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. It's where it's one of Jesus' first major teachings where he's simply saying, here are some things that are true in the kingdom of God, the culture where I come from. These things are true. So he says, you have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. But I say... So that's so key. But I say, he's trying to contrast life in, the, in our human kingdom with life in the kingdom of God. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you Love only those who love you. What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's a daunting P.S. there at the end. But all of this is preceded by saying, if you love your enemies and pray for the people that persecute you, in those ways, you'll be acting like true children of your Father in Heaven. I remember when I was little that I was so confused when, like, people, like, you know, maybe adults or relatives in my life would be like, oh, I don't talk to that person anymore because we had a falling out or something, and just how, like, perplexing that was. Like, what does that even mean? Like, why wouldn't you talk to Aunt Sue you know, just how confusing that is to a child. Like, they don't understand the concept yet of why, how you could ever get to a place where you wouldn't like somebody, you know, and how confusing that is. Yeah, or, or where uh, reconciliation is not a sort of a, a rapid process, mm-hmm. where it's unthinkable that you would never be reconciled yeah. with something that went awry at a play date, that... You, you quickly move past those things to reconcile. So the idea that you would take a stance in life of non-relationship is, is bizarro. It doesn't, it doesn't compute in your little brain. You're just like, what are you talking about? 
I think what's interesting here, too, is, is when he says you, you're acting as true children, he's really saying that a child reflects the thought and behavior patterns of their parents. So you know, as parents, uh, I'm a parent of two girls, I know more than my words and more than my good and bad interactions with them, what they are being molded and shaped by is the essence of my heart and the essence of my wife Bev's heart. They are being shaped by what we honor and don't honor, what we think is good and not good, the patterns of our life that we do even when we're not thinking of them. All these things express our essence, what's at the core of who we are, and our kids are being shaped and molded by those things. So what Jesus is saying here is, when you love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you, you're acting like the essence of me. You're picking up on the essence of who I am, and this is really, I think, his end game. In the, in a, when it all comes down to it, he wants us to immerse ourselves in his presence so that we pick up that essence. We begin to behave like him, not because we're trying harder to be perfect, even as our Father in Heaven isn't perfect. He's really saying, when you become more like my child, you will naturally express the essence of me, because you're, you'll be acting like me because you're my child, and you're picking up on my essence. So, so the more we immerse ourselves in the heart of Jesus, the more we act like him. It just makes sense that we become like children, and we act like he acts. Anything else about that particular encounter? No. Okay, we're going to go to Matthew 18. Let's see... Let's see, Matthew 18, I'm going to plug it in here, Matthew 18, 1 through 6. So um, here, here's an interesting, uh, another iconic moment when Jesus gathers children to himself. So this is Matthew 18, 1 through 6. Here's how it starts. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples seem to be always you know, interested in who's above and who's below. Totally. Who's at the right hand and they, who's not? This is, this is child, childness. Childishness. Childishness. <laughs> this is not childlikeness. That's Child, so true. Childishness. That, you know, that's such an ironic <laughs> such observation. Such a thing that yeah. ki- kids do. <laughs> yeah. So right as he's about to, to extol the virtues of children, his disciples are acting childishly. <laughs> so uh, they, they come to Jesus and they ask, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. And then he said, so just picture that for a second. So he's calling a child who the culture said has zero value. In fact, if you killed that child for a pragmatic reason, nobody would bat an eye in this culture. And he's calling that child into the circle of adults where they don't belong, and then he's going to use that child as an example of something good. It's shocking. And he, so he calls the child to uh, be among them, and then he says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Okay. So Jesus is not shy about using epic metaphor <laughs> to well, drive home his point. If you've ever like seen this particular scene like in movie form or whatever, it always is portrayed as like a bunch of hippies were like hanging out and Jesus is like the king of the hippies and they're talking about like peace and love. But this was actually a culturally shocking thing to do. This is like an example of, you know, we talk in Jesus centered life Rick talks a lot about nice Jesus. And I feel like this is one of those portrayals of Jesus. He's such a nice guy, such a nice guy. He's cuddly. He's yeah, inviting a child. Yeah, but this was actually like a flamboyantly in your face, in your face, like thing that he did. This would have been shocking. This yeah. would have been like, how dare he do this? This is a violation of our culture and our laws today. Um, this is, this is flamboyant Jesus yeah. in this in this case, and if you can see it like that, it's a very different picture. And if you think about what what Becky, what you just said, and you think about it in terms of um, Jesus said, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child. So now we know what he means by humble as this little child. We understand in the historical context what that really means. We read this and we think, oh, humble meaning little. <laughs> you know, and maybe innocent, and but what he meant is humble as doesn't matter at all. Yeah. In the context of this child, they have nothing. There's yeah. no esteem, no honor associated with them, nothing. You have nothing. And he's saying anyone who becomes as humble in the, as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what do you think he's talking about there? Well, I feel like this is a good time to tell the story um, from oh, the pig's page. Yeah. I, w I know we were going to tell it a little later, yeah, but good. now I'm feeling a little bit. So many of you guys know about the pig's page. If you haven't joined, um, we encourage you to, this is a place for people who are all in for Jesus. And we have created quite the community there. And we use the name pigs, by the way, it comes from the Jesus centered life where there, there's a chapter I wrote called living the pig's life. And it really just references, uh, common parable that you might have heard before, that that for any dinner meal, the pig gives everything, but the chicken just gives a portion, just an egg. So you want to be the pig. You want to go all in with Jesus. So that's why we named this page The Pigs. It's people who have a hunger and desire to go all in with Jesus. And that's truly the community that we've built. So a young woman wrote in on The Pigs page um, last week, and her story just really has so much meaning to this episode, and I wanted to share it with you because I think it's a great example of what it looks like to be truly humble. Um, she said, I've been joyfully making my way through all the old podcast episodes, and oh my goodness, has Jesus ever touched my heart and taught me so many things already. I pulled away from him for so long because of guilt, sure that if I couldn't be fully committed from day one, ready to sell all my possessions and follow him, really, this is the measuring stick I was using. I grew up poor and still am. Giving away money is hard when I don't always know where the next bill is going to be paid from that I shouldn't even bother if, if I wasn't going to be able to be this truly committed to Jesus. The, pr the pressure, understandably, was too much to handle. Hearing Rick and Becky talk about playing games with Jesus, building faith through baby steps, letting go of the biggest shoulds and the guilt, one of the biggest aha moments in my life. Uh, when Jesus talks here about anyone who leads my little ones um, away from me, 
this is the kind of thing that I think about is that we have a tendency in this life with Jesus to lay the burdens on ourself and on other people. And they keep little children away from the kingdom of God. Mm. And I am just, I see this girl as a child who is being led back to Jesus. And I just think this is an example of being the least in the kingdom. And she, at the end of that, I think also said, I don't even have enough money to get the book you guys talk about, The Jesus-Centered Life, but I'm going to save my money until I get it. And that's kind of the, that's the kind of exclamation point PS to this story. Why don't you tell that part of it? So I was a little, I, I didn't read this until the weekend because I, I, we, like we have been saying, we've been really busy. So I've been catching up on things on the weekend. And I, so I read the story and I went, oh my gosh, I'm getting her a book. And so I reached out to her on Facebook and she said, thank you so much. But um, one of the other pigs in the group um, read my message and found out where I work. She works um, for a coffee shop and showed up to my work and gave me a copy of Jesus Centered Life. She was so shocked um, that that happened that she didn't even get get that person's name. I don't even know who that person is. They have not um, come out and said that they who they were. They just have they did that anonymously. Um, she also said that she gave her her copy. She didn't you know buy her new one. She gave her her copy, and so that was just such a great exclamation point there, to that there's, story. There's humility all over in both sides of this story. That what you already pointed out about her coming back to Jesus in a humble, stripped down way. But also that person who acted in a childlike way, a, a child would see the need and say, why couldn't I meet it? And act out of that kind of passion and commitment and show up risking awkwardness and inconvenience and all those things just to create delight in someone else. Well, and the thing that's really shocking to me is we don't have thousands of people who are in this pigs group. We have a couple hundred people, and both of these people are in Canada, in the same area of Canada. It was just such a Jesus thing. And w- one thing I know must have been true about whoever did this, whoever offered this the book to, to this person, is that the Spirit nudged them, and they listened to the Spirit's nudge, and then did something about it. Mm -hmm. That's also something humbly childlike. When Jesus says humble here, um, I think part of what he means is what we talked about before, free. When you recognize you have nothing, you can give everything, in in the sense that if if you're not hanging on to things with white knuckles, then you're more free to give out of what out of what you do have and i believe that whoever did this was acting in that spirit not hanging on to things like how much time am i going to lose if i do this or oh i've already bought this book am i going to really buy it again or how much will the gas cost for me to drive to wherever this person is none of those thoughts were really driving them it was really a spirit of giving that was free from all of the things that kind of drag us back from the precipice of giving. So so then in, in this story um, that we just read, Jesus goes on to say, anyone who welcomes a little child like this, this one that's standing here right now on my behalf, is welcoming me. So now he's comparing himself to the child who has nothing, who's considered nothing in the kingdom. He's He's really trying to say, you think of me as king, prove it. When you welcome a child who has no status, no power, 
and you invite them into a place of refuge and honor, then you're, you might as well be doing it to me. Uh, when you treat a nothing like a king, you're acting like me, and you're treating the nothing like you would me. You're inviting me into that environment. So the understanding, again, what children were like during this time is, is so important to understanding what Jesus meant. So let's go to the, the next one. It's in Matthew 21, and it's verses 15 and 16. Um, let me read that real quick here, 15 and 16. This is just after Jesus has cleared the temple of the money changers, and so he's just had this extraordinary, almost violent encounter in the temple where he's furious that the money changers are in the temple making money in a house of prayer. And uh, it actually starts in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. So this is after he clears it, the blind and the lame come to him, and he healed them. And the leading priests and teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the Scriptures? For they say, You have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. So what are the Pharisees and teachers of the law upset about here? They're upset that these little children are watching what he's doing, healing the, the lame and the, and the sickly people that have come to the temple, the blind and the lame, these little children see him doing this, and they're like, oh my gosh, he must be God. Hmm. And the religious leaders are like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, did you, you hear what they're saying, right? You need to correct those children, hmm. because you certainly aren't God. And Jesus says, you know what? Those children get it. Because <laughs> they can see. I mean, it's very clear to them. They're like that's that's God. That's Jesus right there. Yeah, it's so it's so much harder when we become adults because we have all these like filters and things that make us skeptical. We become so skeptical as adults and children are not really very skeptical. They don't have all of they don't have anything that has taught them to be skeptical at this point. They yeah. just take it on face value. And it's it's actually if you've ever if you've ever taught Sunday school before, it is so easy to see how 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 kids just accept faith in a way that that adults are way more resistant to. Yeah, and one one little uh, takeaway here: if you read Jesus in the spirit of a child, you will do what these children did in this situation. So you come to him and say, "What did I just see? And what did I just hear?" Not what the Sunday school version of that is, but what did I just hear and see? I just love this story in um, this book uh, called Jesus, Mean and Wild by Mark Galley, where he talks about when he was a pastor at a big church, and he was leading the new members class, and there was a bunch of Laotian refugees coming to his class, and he told the story of uh, Jesus commanding the storm to cease when he was on the waters, and the storm ceased. And the Laotians, you, Mark Galley was trying to make the point with these Laotian refugees who were kind of uh, on-ramping into their church that Jesus can calm the storms in your life. He was treating the story as metaphoric. And the Laotian refugees said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did you say that this man told the sea to calm down? And it did. And Mark Galley said, well, yeah, but it's really a metaphor for Jesus calming the storms in your life. And the Laotians said, whoa, did Jesus actually do that? And Mark Galley said, well, well yeah. 
And then the Laotians just broke into worship. They were just overcome by the thought that this man could do this. And Mark Galley talks about in his book how this was such a revelation to him. It exposed something in him that was not childlike any longer, that he was no longer approaching Jesus as he was. He was metaphorizing everything, and he was making a teaching point or a tip and technique out of everything instead of just encountering the heart of Jesus and what he did. So reading the Bible with the aim of worshiping Jesus instead of studying Jesus is a good filter to have, that you, you read him like a little child would read him, like these little children experienced him. And you know, um, one of the things that—this uh, is going to be fun here, is we, we're going to transition to something here. Um, little children have story time, and they, uh, they love story. Children are addicted to story. They are formed by story. And uh, that's one of the reasons why our team here just created a new Bible for children called uh, the Friends with God Story Bible. And it's a beautifully illustrated Bible, but one of the things that's radically different about it is that all of the stories are told from the perspective of the people in the Bible. It's not a story about people, it's told first person from the people who are actually in the story. And this is another... Yeah, this is a Bible for children, but I recommend adults Seriously, getting it. Seriously, <laughs> adults are going to love this Bible. Be- we don't have the attention span anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what's so beautiful about it is because it is told through the eyes of the characters of the Bible in a way that children can easily understand, you strip away some of the stuff that is that we sometimes get sidetracked by in the Bible. So I'm going to have Becky read one of these stories, and I just want you to listen to this as if you were a child, that you you for sure know this story she's about to read, but listen to it with new ears as if you were a child. So go for it, Becky. So first of all, this Bible is also fully illustrated, so it's an illustrated Bible for kids. And then, it again, like Rick said, it's told in the first person, so this will be a different way to hear this story, but the, the, the name of this story is called Laughing Matters. This story is pulled from Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and also um, 21, 1 through 6. So it gives you the Bible reference. So if you do want to go and, you know, double check and read what was actually there, you can do that. Um, but this is a story by Sarah. I've seen a lot of funny things in my old age, but I've never laughed as hard as I did today. It started when my husband Abraham was talking to some strangers outside. They must have been pretty important because he had me serve them a fancy meal of roasted meat, bread, yogurt, and milk. While we were talking, I heard one of them say, when I come back next year, your wife Sarah will have a son. Ha, I laughed to myself. Abraham and I are too old to have kids. We should be grandparents by now, but it's just too late for us. But the men happen to be from God. Oops, they heard me. Don't laugh, the Lord said. Nothing is too hard for God. And he was right. Sure enough, nearly a year later, I had a baby. Can you believe it? Abraham was 100 years old when our son was born. 100 years old. It made me laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. We named our child Isaac, which means he laughs. That was the greatest joy of my life. 
it proved to me again how much God really loves me. The other unique thing is at the end of these stories, there's just kind of a little discussion question that you can use between you and your child to talk about. So it says, isn't joy amazing? There's really nothing in the world as satisfying as pure happiness. God taught me that in a way I never expected. When God said I was going to have a baby, I thought it was a joke. But after Isaac was born, I was laughing for a different reason. God filled me with a joy I'd never felt before. God wants to bring joy to you too. What makes you laugh? So this gives you a chance to have a fun, interactive time with your child afterwards. Also, like I said, I can't stop reading this Bible. It's really great. So um, it's called the Friends with God Story Bible. We produce this. This is our company. This is from the Jesus Center team. We are part of putting this out, um, and it's available in all the places that you can buy books. So. Yeah, it's it's actually, it was released just in the last week, and it's already the, the top children's Bible in the world. And it's, it's because it's beautiful, but it also has this unique uh, vantage point from telling these stories from the through the eyes of the characters themselves. And you can see as you're listening to this, I was just thinking as as I listened like a little kid, do you read this, that, that uh, sometimes adults re- react to uh, surprising, shocking things with skepticism, criticism, analyzation. In this story, you see the childlike response of delight over something God has done. The idea that that we would be delighted by the things that Jesus does in and through our everyday lives, and sometimes we are just moving too fast, like we have been today, or we are so into our adult head that we don't pause to delight in these remarkable miracles that he has invested in our life. We don't even see the miracles that, you know, at our dinner time, around dinner time at night, um, when we pause to pray, we try to not just pray for the food on our table. We are trying to pray in a way that reflects gratitude over uh, the overlooked things that have happened to us in the day, to point out the things that we've taken for granted but actually are miraculous gifts. And in that way, developing the heart of gratefulness and delight toward the ways that Jesus uh, threads his way into our life is a is a childlike way of living. So these aspects of childlikeness, where there is a, a sense of freedom and trust, I think in the end, the, the central aspect of childlikeness to me is this sense of unmitigated trust in the authority of your uh, in your life, that little kids don't have any thought that their parent won't come to support and care for them and do what's needed for them. They only learn to distrust when that trust is broken. So the, I think the greatest miracle in all of the Bible and, the, and what Jesus is really up to in his mission is to do what seems impossible, to restore our childlike trust in him. And I just, um, after reading this story in the Pigs Group, I really want to say this today, that children mess up all the time. I mean, it starts when they're like barely walking that they just start doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing and <laughs> making you mad and they, they don't have know to any be better. disciplined. <laughs> but they never for one minute doubt 
in their mind that their parents love them and that there's anything that they could do to fully separate themselves from him, mm. from the, their parents. Yeah. And if you've been listening or if you've just started listening to, to this podcast, I want to say that. I don't care if you feel like you have ruined your life or that God could never touch you or that you don't have enough commitment for him. He is always chasing after you because you are his child. We just want to make sure that everyone here knows that they have a path to Jesus that is clear and that the way is clear and that he will never stop relentlessly pursuing you. And and as we close, I just felt nudged to do this as Becky was saying what she just said. So if if you just now resonated with what Becky said, like even if you got a little bit of emotional as you heard what she said, I just want to stop for just a moment and pray for you right now. So Lord Jesus, we, we ask for those people who just heard that and got a little bit of emotion because of it, that you're right then surfacing an area of captivity in them, that they... They, their longing and their hunger was coming to the surface. So we ask right now, Jesus, that you would bring freedom from captivity to everyone who just now felt that, that, that they would walk through this open door from their cell to freedom right now, and that you would be there standing, holding open the door as they walk through. So I ask that you would prompt those who just felt that to walk toward you right now, and walk th- through that open door out of their cell into freedom, into your presence, and that as soon as they get past that open door, that your arm goes in their arm, and they know that you're their companion now in a life of freedom. In Jesus' name. Well, gang. It's there, great to be back. It is. And uh, uh, it's it's great, again, to wallow into these stories of Jesus. So please do, if you haven't already joined the Pigs Group we would love it if you did. It's easy to do it. There's a little, uh, if you go on to our uh, podcast page at jesuscenterlife.com, you will find a, a little button there that says, I want to join the pigs, and and you'll, you'll ask to be invited in, and, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, open the gate to you so that you can be part of this community as well. And we often get great suggestions for podcasts on that page, and mm-hmm. there's great help from one another in that page. There's great quests and pursuits of Jesus that are posted on that page. It's a community of like-minded and like-hearted people, so please do pursue that. And we'll also have links to uh, the Friends with God Story Bible on there and other resources we've mentioned uh, in this podcast. And we're just so grateful that you listen and that you're part of this community. Remember, you can find out all about this information in the very place I just mentioned, jesuscenteredlife.com. You just find our podcast section, and you're looking for this episode is Season 2, Episode 35. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and Becky and I will talk to you again next time. Bye. Bye.